0: Welcome to the podcast of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Greenwood, Mississippi. We are a community of Christians that exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ and influence the Delta for the glory of God. More information about Westminster can be found at www.wpcgreenwood.org. Well, good morning. Um, I am not originally from Mississippi, I'm from Alabama. So we moved to Mississippi, uh, Oxford specifically, two months ago. And this summer, I feel like I've been taking my trips through all these small towns that I heard of because my wife's from Jackson, but I never have gotten to see. So it's great to be in Greenwood for the first time. And uh, I love the PCA in which we have this con- connectivity with all of our churches, especially within our campus ministries. That RUF is a ministry of the church, for the church. So uh, we don't feel like we're doing something outside of y'all or in secret. We feel like we are doing something in conjunction with y'all. So uh, we thank you for the ways you support our ministry, pray for our ministry, and uh, I'm just thankful for these relationships that we have. So I always love to come um, to churches and just talk about a little bit of what's going on on campus. I'm always encouraged by how interested y'all are about what students are going through. And I know campus life can seem bleak sometimes. It can seem hopeless sometimes from the outside. But the truth is, God is at work. He has been at work, even in the ministry of RUF at Ole Miss. In fact, I'm meeting with a student tomorrow for coffee. He grew up in rural Mississippi, in a single-parent household was converted through the ministry of RUF. He's a first-generation college student, and now he's contemplating doing the RUF internship. Uh, God's at work doing amazing things, reconciling people to himself through the gospel of Jesus Christ. But at the same time, you, like me, know that there are some concerning statistics about this generation that is now in college. Uh, It's been said that Christianity has been in a steady decline in this generation, uh, so much so that the fastest growing and almost the majority of religion these days is actually none, meaning no religious affiliation at all in Generation Z. Now, that can make us sad, but I actually think this is an occasion for, opportun- for, for optimism, at least opportunity, to be encouraged by what our task is as believers, because while religious unaffiliation or no religion at all is growing and flourishing, Gen Z is not. It's been said that Gen Z has three defining characteristics. Hopelessness, loneliness, and aimlessness. Now, I didn't come here to give a lecture about the state of college students in America, but these three problems, hopelessness, loneliness, purposelessness, or aimlessness, are not just problems that we see on campus. They're problems that we see in our congregations. They're problems that we see in our own lives, are they not? And the amazing thing about the gospel, specifically the resurrection, this passage that we're going to look at today, is that it breathes life and truth, and it actually gives us the resources to address all three of these problems. So we're going to look at this in the context of John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18, Mary Magdalene's encounter with Jesus in the resurrection. I'll read it for us as we begin. Now on the first day of the week, he saw linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the, into the tomb, and he saw linen cloths lying there, and a face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. The other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary... Mary stood there weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had laid, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus, but she did not know that it was Jesus standing there. Jesus said to her, Woman, my God and to your God, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, "I have seen the Lord, and that He had said these things to her. Let me pray for us as we dive into the scripture. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us in Jesus. Um, we thank you that you love to communicate your grace and your kindness and your mercy and your hope and your purpose to weak and fickle sinners like ourselves. We pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see the beauty and majesty of who you are and who you've been for us in Jesus. We pray all this in Christ's name, amen. So we're going to look at three points, addressing those three problems that I uh, said Gen Z and all of us struggle with. This hopelessness, this loneliness, this aimlessness. So the first point is the resurrection speaks to our hopelessness. One unavoidable observation from this passage is Mary's sadness, These pages are soaked with the tears of Mary. She approaches the tomb on that early morning day with grief, with sadness. Other gospel accounts note that she was not approaching the tomb thinking that Jesus was going to be resurrected and there to celebrate. She had burial spices with her. She was going to cover up the stench of Jesus' dead body. Her grief grows, her sadness grows when she finds the tomb empty. Suspecting that somebody had taken him, she anxiously, hopelessly runs to Peter and to John, the other disciple, for help. And then finally, if you look at verse 12, after Peter and John leave the scene, Mary is paralyzed, paralyzed with grief. She doesn't know what to do, so she stays and weeps. The presence of so much grief in this passage, so much hopelessness that Mary is feeling leans us to the question, where is our hopelessness in our life? Where is the grief present in our life that immobilizes us? I had a seminary professor uh, that would start off every class with just this one saying that she would always say before she prayed. She said, I got issues, you got issues, we all got issues, let's pray. As cheesy as it sounded every day, uh, it was quite refreshing to have the honesty that, hey, we're all struggling here. We're a denomination that believes in total depravity. That doesn't mean that everything is as bad as it could be. We know that. We know it could be worse. God is kind in his grace to give us some pleasures here in this fallen world. But what total depravity means is that not one thing is untouched by sin, which means my seminary professor is right, that there are a lot of occasions for hopelessness, for grief, for sadness, broken finances, broken families, broken self-image, broken communities, broken friendships, broken churches. There is always the occasion for grief. Now, we know this even more well in our information age, our internet age that we live today, because even if things are going great for us in Greenwood, we know that this world is covered with bad news, and it just bleeds through our TVs and our phones constantly. And it can be the temptation, just like it is for Generation Z and us alike, to just resign to hopelessness. That feeling that you say, it's just, just let it all go. But the reality is that the gospel has something to say. The resurrection has something specific to say to that hopelessness. And I really do believe that that is why John is so detailed in this story about the resurrection, Because he paints the resurrection on top of the canvas of Mary's grief and hopelessness. Because he wants us to see that the resurrection is God's direct response to our grief. It is God breathing hope into our world and into our stories. The resurrection is proof that God actually cares about the sadness that we're experiencing and that the world is experiencing. And I just want y'all to sit in that for a second that God actually cares, cares enough to enter into it with you. If you notice, when Jesus, uh, or when Mary looks into the tomb, the angels don't say, stop crying. And then when she turns around to Jesus, the angel, or he doesn't say, stop crying. You know, the gospel is just good news to excuse all your sadness. No, he sits in it with her. They sympathize with her. They acknowledge her grief. They don't shame her for it. Isaiah said that Jesus himself would be a man of sorrows stricken with grief. What this means for us, in our hopelessness and our sadness, is we don't have a savior that's unable to understand what we're going through. We have one who entered in to the brokenness of this world, to the brokenness of our family lives, our friendships, our finances, our communities, our churches, and he cares. He cares enough even to just validate us that it's really hard to remain hopeful in the midst of all this sorrow. But even more than that, the resurrection also speaks to more things. Point number two that we're going to look at, the resurrection speaks to our loneliness. There's two main ways that the resurrection really informs us that we're not alone. The first is the resurrection gives us a reason to hope in God's mercy. So if you notice, in the midst of her grief, in verse 11, Mary actually does something quite desperate. She stoops into the tomb. She stoops to look into the tomb again. Now, why she did this, I have no idea. She's already looked in the tomb. The story's already admitted that. But it may have just been something desperate, desperately hoping that this wasn't all true, that Jesus had not been taken away. In her desperation, she's actually rewarded. She sees two angels sitting there. John is very careful to note one sitting at the head of where Jesus was laid, one is at the foot of where Jesus is laid. Now what does this mean? Why was he so keen on adding this detail of where the angels were sitting, where Jesus's body had been laid? Well, John is a big reference to the Old Testament. He loves going back to the Old Testament to help us interpret what the gospel means for us, and we need some help here. And there's actually help for us in Exodus 25, if we go all the way back. Exodus 25 is when Moses, the leader of the Israelites, they have just escaped Pharaoh, they have just uh, gone over the, uh, the Red Sea, or gone through the Red Sea, and now God is giving Moses specific instructions on how to build the tabernacle, meaning how they are supposed to build this place where God was gonna be with them, where they would know they're not alone. And in this way, in these directions that God is giving Moses, he says, at the very center of the tabernacle, I want you to build this wooden box, the Ark of the Covenant, this box where my presence will dwell. And on the place of that box, I want you to put a gold-plated covering. And on each side of the covering, I want an angelic figure, one at the head and one at the foot. Now, if you know a little bit about the Old Testament sacrificial system, how God was able to dwell and be with his people to soothe and to satisfy their loneliness. It was that the high priest, as we read earlier in our service, would go into the temple and, and shed the blood of animals to provide atonement. The people were sinful. We are sinful. We need atonement for our sins in order for God to be with us. And the Old Testament it was the animals. And yet now when Mary looks into the tomb, she sees what all of this Old Testament sacrificial system was pointing to. It's what Hebrews tells us, that all of this was a shadow to what Jesus ultimately fulfilled. When she sees the angel sitting at the head and at the foot of where Jesus laid, what she saw was the true mercy seat. That where Jesus had laid and his blood had been spilled, satisfaction for her sin, atonement, had been provided. Now what does this mean for us? How does this speak to our, our sadness, our loneliness? There's a show I enjoy, Ted Lasso, I'm not going to go through the whole context, but he's a football coach or a soccer coach, and he says something interesting to his team when they're experiencing some sadness. He says, there's something worse out there than being sad, you know. It's being alone and being sad. And isn't that true? That our greatest fear is not that we would just experience sadness, but that we wouldn't be worthy of being comforted that we wouldn't merit God's attention, his affection, that we wouldn't merit someone else's love and comfort in the midst of our pain, that we're too messed up, that we're, we have too much guilt on us, we have too much sin in our lives to be satisfied and to be comforted by the love of our Savior. What the mercy seat says is that your comfort, God's relationship with you, His presence in your life is not dependent on your merit, on your goodness. It's not dependent on how much sin you have in your life. In Christ, he has provided mercy, which means in Christ we will never be alone and sad. Which brings me to the second way that the resurrection speaks to our loneliness. It's that the resurrection gives us a reason to hope in reconciliation, On campus, I was the RUF campus minister at Arkansas State for three years. Uh, It's in the Arkansas Delta, Jonesboro, Arkansas. And one of the things, a lot of my students came from um, just very uh, classic, conservative, kind of simplistic Christian backgrounds. They didn't know much about the full gospel, all of scripture, what it's pointing to, and the goodness of Jesus. They knew just like these little cliche taglines about what the gospel was. And if I asked my students what it was, the most common answer I would hear for the gospel is that Jesus forgives me of my sins. And like, that's beautiful. We just talked about that. That's wonderful news. But in reality, that's not the full gospel. There is more good news than just Jesus forgiving your sins. I'll put it this way. Imagine you're doing premarital counseling for a young couple. And you ask the guy who's... um, this girl's fiance. What do, you li- what do you like about your relationship with her the most? And he kind of thinks for a while, he looks around, and he says, I really like how we're good at keeping the peace. I really like how good we are at fighting. You know, we get along really well, and we forgive each other really well. That sounds on the surface like a great Christian answer, I'll be honest. But if you looked at the fiance, what you would see is not a smile on her face, what you would see is shock, disgust, that the thing you like most about me, she would think, is how we handle conflict. It's not how great we get along, how much we like to do together, how our goals are kind of lined up in our life, how much chemistry we have, uh, my personality, my beauty, my humor, that you just like how we handle conflict. Friends, the gospel is not just the good news that our conflict with Jesus has been settled. It's much more. It's that love has been secured. It's that a relationship has been restored. It's that we're not just not alone. We're actually embraced and comforted. Look at the passage. Mary turns around, and with tears in her eyes, she can't really make out that Jesus is standing there. But then Jesus does something allows Mary to see who he really is for her without even her seeing him. One commentator said that Jesus, in this moment, preached the shortest and most beautiful sermon in all of the Bible, verse 16. It's a one-word sermon. He just says, Mary. My son uh, is two and a half years old, and he's gotten in this funny habit where like, we're trying to potty train him, so we're like, do you need to go to the bathroom? Or we're trying to make him eat something. Are you hungry? And whenever we address him in that way, he'll say, no, I'm John. And we're like, no, you get, like, we get it, like, you are John, yes, Um, but like, are you hungry? No, I'm John. Um, What my son wants us to know, what my son really longs for, is that we know his name. Because he wants to know that he's loved, he wants to know that he's known. We are wired, not just to be forgiven, not just to have peace with God, we're wired For God to know our name. For him not just to tolerate us, but to call us. And this is what Jesus is saying to Mary. That you are not just not alone. You are loved. You are protected. You are provided for. That's what Jesus' grace secures for us. That we're never sad. We're never alone. We're actually embraced as sons and daughters of God in his covenant family and he will never leave us or forsake us. My last point, it's a short one. The resurrection speaks to our aimlessness. So one of the repercussions uh, that Gen Z is experiencing to being indifferent to matters of religion is that religion actually, regardless of Christianity, it helps root you in a story, meaning it answers the questions that give you not only a future hope, but present purpose, It helps spell out what we're called to in life, what we're made for, what we're supposed to do. And what's amazing about the Christian story is that what we're made for is not performance. What we're made for is not to just stack up all the good deeds on our side and and secure God's love. What we're made for is actually to love others, love this world, love God as as a reaction to experiencing the love of God first. You know, what our students are longing for is someone to come into their lives and say, look, your life is not about proving yourself, providing for yourself. Your life is actually supposed to be a joyous a joyous celebration, a joyous story, a joyous participation in the God who joyfully created you. And in this story, we see this in verse 16, or 17 and 18. Jesus' encounters always end with a commission. A commission to the people he encounters, but also to us, the readers. He commissions Mary, look, don't cling to me. Note that he did let Mary for some time cling to him. He says, don't cling to me any longer. Go and tell your brothers. Go and tell the disciples about what has happened to you. Go and become an agent of reconciliation, of good news. Go and actually have purpose into your life, you showed up to the tomb, hopeless, aimless, lonely, and now you're sent out joyful, secure, and with a mission. And as we come to a close, I just want to ask this question. It's a question that a lot of um, that I try to answer for myself, my own life, and a lot of students are trying to to answer as well what do we need to understand about the gospel to actually make our purpose in life joyful? In other words, how does the Christian life become something I want to do and not have to do? I really think it has to do with the order of this story. Because the Christian life is only lived joyfully out of a response. Mary is comforted by Jesus' resurrection. She's consoled by his presence. And then, and only then, is she sent out. As secure, loved, known, named, she's sent out to go and tell of the love that she's experienced. We can't bring others to experience the resurrection unless we have experienced it ourselves. Unless we have experienced Jesus in this way as well or else it will just become a burden and we'll be inviting other people into our own burden. The gospel is an invitation to live a life of purpose-filled joy in reaction to the joy that Jesus had in saving us and making his own. I'll end with this story. I am not a tennis person, but for some reason over the past year I've encountered two stories about famous tennis players, one in a book, one in a movie. The book I read was about Andre Agassi, a former number one in the world, uh, amazing tennis player. And the movie I watched uh, was King Richard, which, uh, as some of y'all know, is Venus and Serena Williams' father. And it's interesting to contrast this. Andre Agassi writes in his memoir um, that he actually hated tennis, that he never wanted to play tennis. The only reason he played was because he grew up in a household where his dad— told him at the very young age what he was going to be, what he was going to do. He said, Andre, you're going to be number one in the world in tennis. And so he drug him out to the court every day, made him become great. Andre ended up becoming great, and yet he was miserable the whole time. And that moment he became number one in the world, he went back to his house. It's the first time he felt like he actually had something to tell his father that would make him happy. And he goes, Dad, I made it. I did it. I became number one in the world and his dad looks at him and he says, without a smile on his face, I know. You did what you were supposed to do. Contrast that with King Richard, this movie uh, about Serena and Vil- Venus Williams' father. Um, as he's taking them to the tennis courts every day, there's multiple scenes in the movie where there's, they pile in this big van, all the sisters together and they're about to go play tennis. They're about to go work hard But he asked them uh, this question every time they get into the van. He says, Serena, do you know who loves you? She says, Daddy loves me. Venus, do you know who loves you? Daddy loves me. Before they ever pick up a racket, they know that their father's love, their father's smile, their father's security is not dependent on how they practice, not on how they form. And as a result, actually really liked what they were doing tennis became a way that they could participate and enjoy their father and enjoy the love that he has for them friends this is what it looks like to have purpose in your life to not be aimless to not be hopeless to not be lonely it's to know the father who looks at us and says Do you know who loves you daddy loves you that's what the gospel is and that is the only way that the Christian life will not become a burden, that we'll actually have good news to share because we have experienced this God who is raised from the dead, secured for us eternal life, secured for us comfort, a name, a family, simply out of his good pleasure and not out of our goodness. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask that by your Spirit, uh, that you would crush the guilt in us, crush the shame in us, crush the lies of Satan in us that keep us from believing that this is all hopeless, that we're on our own, and that there's no purpose in this life. Do that on campus at Ole Miss, of course, but also do that here at Westminster and Greenwood, that we would know you and that the joy we have in knowing you would become palpable and attractive to the people who don't in our lives. We ask all of this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Hi, Richard Owens here. I just wanted to take a second to say thank you for listening to the podcast of Westminster Presbyterian Church. Our prayer is that the Lord would use this message to encourage you in the gospel and that you would find Jesus to be more beautiful than you ever, ever imagined. If you'd like to find out more about who Jesus is or more about our church, I invite you to visit our website at wpcgreenwood.org. God bless.